Shalom to gracious and friends, especially for those of you who are following us online right now in our new Supernatural Realm series. We welcome you. And for those of you at Tangling, we welcome you as well. Uh, just wave at me, those at Tangling, just wave at me. That's right, I want to acknowledge you. Uh, though I'm at Bukit Bato, I want you to know that you are part of Grace Assembly, okay? Shalom and blessing to you over at Tangling. And for those of you on site here with me at Bukit Bato, just wave at me right now. It's so good to see all of you. It's just an, a different experience altogether, uh, being able to see you guys returning back on site and to, to, to give a fist pump to some of you in real person. It's, it's definitely very refreshing for me, okay? I'm excited, like what Pastor Joey shared earlier, to have the church and our small group ministry embarking on this exciting new preaching series. This series started last week, and of course, uh, started with Pastor Ming Cham last week. And I want you to know that this series has been through many hours of research and discussion among the pastoral staff, and we want to lead you on a journey to discover the unseen realm of divine beings in scriptures. These divine beings, they are there in scriptures. And many times when we read the Bible, we just miss them totally. And I'll explain to you why later. And as we pro progress through the weeks ahead of us, you will better understand the implications of all of these teachings that we are unfolding to you. But I will need you to be patient with us as we need to first unpack different concepts, biblical concepts with you before you can connect the dots yourself, okay? So let me just recap right now what happened last week. If you remember last week, Pastor Meng Cham started the series with the big idea that Yahweh, our Creator God, is sovereign and above all other created beings. Now, that is a very important big idea. Our, our God, Yahweh, He is sovereign above all created beings. Yes, Yahweh is eternal. Yahweh is incomparable. No created being can be equal to Him. And we also learned last week the importance of understanding the Bible, the Scriptures, in its original text. Now, those of you who are here and those of you at, at uh, Tangling, say with me right now, original text. Very important, you must understand scriptures in its original text, especially the supernatural worldview that the ancient Old Testament writers and the readers of scriptures, they carry with them when they read the scriptures. And as you read scriptures, they are a few thousand years old. Now, how many of you know that our scripture is actually a few thousand years old? It wasn't written yesterday. It wasn't written 10 years ago or 100 years ago. Our scriptures, they are actually thousands over years ago, put together over many, 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 a long period of time with many writers, many ancient writers, they put it together, and that's what we're reading it today. And as we read scriptures that are a few thousand years old, we must never impose our modern-day lenses and presupposition into the scriptural text. We must be very careful to understand it purely from our perspective today. Because a thousand years ago, how they read scriptures, their worldview is very different from how we would read today. So we must strive to understand the context and culture of the ancient writers. And that's what we want to do in this new series, where we will, we will dive deep into scriptures 
to understand the supernatural worldview that's so clear to the ancient readers, but not so clear by us today, okay? We may have missed it, even though we read it every day. And from, for the next two weeks, we want to dive into the concept of God's family as seen from Scriptures. God's family. And this week, we will examine God's divine family. And next week, we will look at God's human family. So right, this week, divine family. Next week, human family. Now, the big idea for today is this. God desires His divine family to partner with Him. God desires His divine family to partner with Him. Now, let's begin with Job, chapter, uh, Job 38. Job chapter 38, one of the earliest books written in the Bible is the book of Job. And, and let's see the existence of God's divine family even before the creation of human beings. Let's take a look at it right now. The context of Job 38 is a conversation between God and Job. Because Job was very upset with God and God appeared to Job finally. And, and then God had a conversation with Job. And in the conversation, God asked Job a few questions. Let's look at it right now. Job 38 verse 4 to 5, it says this, Where were you? That means this is God speaking to Job. God appeared to Job and God asked Job this question. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Verse 6. On, on what were its bases sunk? Or, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, in this passage, you can see God in this, having a conversation with Job and God describing the creation process to Job, of course, we know that Job was not there. So God was asking Job, you were not even there during creation. How will you fully understand me? And in verse 7, we read about the morning stars and, the, and all the sons of God were there and they shouted for joy during the creation of the universe. Now, Old Testament writers... You must understand that ancient Old Testament writers would never call human beings the sons of God or morning stars. So who are these sons of God and these morning stars that we have just read? And you must understand that in the ancient Near Eastern worldview, which is almost, almost, right, almost four or 5,000 years ago, the term morning stars and the sons of God, they refer to celestial or spiritual spiritual beings, celestial or spiritual beings. The sons of God term connotes a family concept. So every time you, you read the scriptures and you read the word sons of God, it talks about a family. That's why it's about sonship. It's about family relationship here. That's why it says sons of God. So sons of God here refer to family. And in this case, referring to God's divine family members. These spiritual beings were there before human beings were created, 
and they witnessed God creating the universe, and they shouted for joy. And that's why you can find the term sons of God in Job chapter 1 and 2 as well. Let's go to Job chapter 1 now. In Job chapter 1, a very interesting verse, and some of you may have read this, and, and it, it may have never occurred to you, but let me ex- break it apart for you right now. It says this in Job 1, in Job 1 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Interesting verse, isn't it? There were sons of God who came. They means there was an assembly, and they came together. Job chapter 2 now, another passage, Job 2 verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, you can see from these passages in Job that the sons of God term is used for divine spiritual beings. Oh, I mentioned earlier, celestial beings. They're spiritual beings. And these celestial sons of God assemble themselves to present themselves before God. Now, let me show you right now other interesting verses in scriptures that indicated the presence of these spiritual beings other than God himself. Another passage in Psalms 82, verse 1. Psalms 82, verse 1 says this, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, this passage in highlights to us or indicated to us God presiding over a divine council where he holds judgment. Now, it could not be a council if God, if God were all alone, right? There must be other divine spiritual beings surrounding God to be a council and for him to preside over. It would be quite funny or it'd be quite funny that God calls, in, in the Bible, right, He calls it a council where God is the only one there. It's very strange, isn't it? I mean, God is not, is not so egotistical where He needs to call it a council when He's alone. So obviously, when you're in the Scriptures, when there's a divine council, that means God is not there alone. There is a body. There were other spiritual beings there, and that's why it's called a council. Another verse in Psalms 89. Psalms 89 says this, and our passage that support this idea even more so. In Psalms 89 verse 5, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Now, for those of you who are still in school, do you have morning assembly every, every day from Monday to Friday? Yes or no? Most of us have, right? We have, more, we have an assembly. Of course, now, uh, ever since last year, COVID didn't allow us to gather in, in big numbers. But we have some form of assembly for teachers or principal to meet you, to address with you. And similarly, he says here, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones in verse 5. Look at verse 6 now. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? Verse 7. Very interesting. It's getting more and more interesting now. Look at verse 7 now. He says, A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. 
counsel again. And awesome above all who are around him. So you must understand that verse 5 and 6, 7, they are, they are talking about the same idea. The assembly of the holy ones, the heavenly beings, the council of the holy ones. They are talking about all the same idea. There is, there, there, are, there is a group of spiritual beings surrounding God. Verse 5 talks about assembly. Verse 6 talks about heavenly beings. Verse 7 repeats the concept of the council again. Very clearly written there, verse 5, 6, and 7. Again, a reinforcement of the concept of God's divine counsel here. Therefore, we can draw some immediate facts from these passages and scriptures right now. From all of these texts I've just read to you, you can draw quickly very, very clear concept and facts. And that is, God has a divine family made up of sons of God. And these divine sons of God also form part of God's counsel, as we just read just now in verse 7. They form part of God's counsel in overseeing God's affairs in heaven and on earth. And for those of us who are familiar with the concept of, of Chinese emperor and his royal family uh, through Chinese novels or movies, you will better appreciate what we have just touched on. Now, how many of you are, have, have read the story of Qin Shi Huang before? Uh, it's a Chinese emperor called Qin Shi Huang, or the romance of a three kingdom, San Guo Yan Yi. And if you, have, if you have followed these stories, right, you will, you will see very clearly the concept of emperor and his royal family. Very clear one. Emperor, royal family, and then, and then of course, the emperor will have many, many capable people, capable uh, officials in his council to help him make decisions for his empire. And the emperor would also have many, many children. And some of these children could also serve as officials in the royal council, assisting their father in ruling the empire. And these ancient kings that we know of, and we read of, some of us may have read of it, follow it uh, in, in, in our Chinese tradition and history, these ancient kings and their empires were run in a similar fashion, imitating, I use the word very clearly, imitating the divine council model. They learned it from somewhere. This concept of kings was, was, was there thousands and thousands of years ago. Where do they learn it from? They learn it from and they imitate it from a divine council model. Not just the Chinese empire, but empires across history have similar models in running their administration. Have you ever wondered where did this concept of a king and his royal council first come from? Where did it come from? And let me submit to you today, it came from heaven. It came from heaven. And Scripture shows us that God has a divine family. And His divine family assists Him in running the affairs of God's kingdom. I know this may sound very new to some of you right now. Some of you may have oh, Pastor, this is new to me, totally new. Yeah, but it has been all along been in Scriptures. It's there. It has always been in Scriptures, but when we read Scriptures, we missed it totally. It never occurred to us that, hey, Actually, that's what Scripture is talking about. And I want you, I want you young people, young adults, I want you to examine Scriptures and see for yourself what the Bible is saying with regards to God's divine family. Let Scriptures speak to you right now. 
Not based on what people tell you, what other books tell you. Look at scriptures. Let the word of God speak to you today. And let me now do a midway summary for all the verses that we have read thus far. And that's from slide 11. Let me just recap all from, all from there right now. Number one is that God is supreme over all creation. Very important. God is supreme of all creation, something that Pastor Ming-Chan mentioned last week. And the sons of God are part of God's divine family. Very important. God is supreme, and under God's supremacy, the sons of God are part of God's divine family. And number three, the sons of God assist God in His counsel to oversee the affairs of God's kingdom, both on earth and in heaven. The question we have to ask ourselves next is this. Who are the sons of God? Who are they? Who are these sons of God as, as described in the Old Testament? Are they angels with wings that we see in, in modern times today? Are they angels? Do they have wings? Do they fly? Why did Psalms 82.1 call these sons of gods, gods, small g-o-d, gods, why did Psalms 82, 1 calls them gods? Who exactly are the sons of God and how do we relate with them? How do we relate with them? And, and let's dive deeper right now into scriptures on these divine beings. And let me begin right now with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Where it says this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. This is the first commandment. And the first commandment says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods. And the word God says Elohim. You shall have no other Elohim, no other gods before me. Now, when the first commandment was given, God gave a very strict instruction. God told the Israelites, and you must understand that God gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites when they first came out of Egypt. And God used the Ten Commandments to teach the Israelites how to relate with God. And the first commandment was very clear, do not worship any other gods. So when the first commandment was given, God gave a very strict instruction. Never, an instruction to the Israelites, never to worship other gods. When Israel stepped, out of Egypt into Canaan land. The first commandment is telling us, if you read it right now, if you read as modern readers reading into the, into the first commandment that was written thousands of years ago, if you read carefully, you will realize this, that the first commandment is actually, is actually telling us that there were other spiritual beings. There were other spiritual beings that God did not allow the Israelites to worship when they went into the promised land. I hope you're, you're, you're tracking with me right now. The entire first commandment tells us there were other beings and God did not allow Israelites to worship these lesser beings. And that's why we have other verses in scriptures that differentiated the created lesser gods and the creator God himself. And let me show some of these verses right now from scripture. Very interesting verse. Stay with me right now. And it's found in Deuteronomy 10, 17. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says this. For the Lord your God 
is God of? Come on, read with me right now. Is God of? God of gods. Interesting, right? He's the God of gods and the Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Now, let me break down these various nouns used in this verse spoken by Moses in his original root form. Now, and, and this is where I want to break it down for you. If you look carefully, the, the, the phrase there in verse 17 says that, for the Lord, the Lord there, can I have next slide? Yes, the Lord says that the word, for the Lord your God is God of gods, right? If you, if you zoom in right now into his original text, in the original Hebrew text, you'll see that for the Lord, for, the, for Yahweh, your God, your Elohim, is Elohim of Elohim. Now, I'm going to the original text. Now, so be patient with me. I'm trying to share you something here. And let me read to you right in his original text. That means, for Yahweh, your Elohim, is Elohim of Elohim. That's what he's actually saying in the original text. So when we read the English text, we miss all of that differentiation. But for the original writers, the ancient writers, it's very clear. There are different beings being mentioned here. And in Moses' speech, he differentiated the Lord, Yahweh, from the other lesser gods through the Hebrew personal nouns. And the name of our Creator, the one that we worship, the one that we give our full allegiance is Yahweh. Yahweh. And the Old Testament scriptures will always identify the Creator God as Yahweh. Say it with me right now, Yahweh. Say it with me right now, Yahweh. I'm teaching to, to a bit of Hebrew as well. Yahweh. The name of God whom we worship is called Yahweh. And every time in the Old Testament, when you see the word Yahweh, it's referring to our God, the God whom we worship. And the Old Testament scriptures will always identify the Creator God as Yahweh. The other lesser Creator gods are often referred to as Elohim. Elohim. So every time you see Elohim, it's referring to the lesser gods in this case. So, so Elohim here has some context. Some of us may have been taught that, that the term Elohim is God's name, which is not true. Elohim is not God's name. And let me explain further. Because have you seen from these passages that Elohim is not God's name really, but rather it refers to anyone who is a spiritual being. And the term Elohim is a classification, a classification for spiritual beings. So when you see what Elohim in scriptures, immediately you know that, oh, it's a classification. It's like animals, it's a classification. All right, animals is a classification on its own. You realize, okay, animals is one form of classification. And so if you learn in, in primary school, right, different kinds of classification of grouping. Similarly, in the spiritual realm, Elohim is a classification. So let me show you right now other passages that validate what I've just shared with you. Psalms 95. Psalms 95, all right? Now, how many, how many are learning something right now? If you're learning something, just wave at me. Psalms 95, it says here very clearly, Psalms 95, it says this, For the Lord, Yahweh, is a great God, and a great king above all gods, above all Elohim. 
So I'm showing you right now the original text for Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all Elohim. Again, you see the, the psalmist intentionally differentiating Yahweh from the lesser gods, the lesser Elohim. Let's see another verse right now to reinforce the concept of Elohim. Psalms 82 verse 1, it says, God, Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the other Elohims, he holds judgment. So God himself, Yahweh himself, is an Elohim, very clear. The Yahweh himself is an Elohim, but he is the head of all. So from verse 1, you see that Yahweh takes his position, his throne in the divine council, and he has other Elohim with him. So Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohim. In our English version, we call it the God of gods. So Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohim. So no other Elohim can be compared with Yahweh, with our Creator God in terms of power and glory. So Yahweh is incomparable. He is incomparable, church. No one is close to Him. He is incomparable. None can be compared with Him. So when we read the English Bible, the challenge for us today is that the meanings of these nouns in this original context are lost in translation. They're all lost. So when we, what, you, what you're holding right now is the English Bible. English version Bible, there are different kinds of versions, but you just cannot capture the essence so clearly as compared to the original text. So if you were to examine the Hebrew Scriptures, you would see other spiritual beings called Elohim, but unfortunately, they are translated as gods, small g-o-d-s in our English verses. And many times, often, when we see and hear the mention of God, G-O-D, or I say small G-O-D, the small G-O-D, when we think of it and read it, immediately we think of the attributes of Yahweh. We think that, oh, is this, is this the Almighty God, the Creator God? And, and, but that's not the intent of ancient writers. It's not. The ancient writers differentiated Yahweh from the lesser created spiritual beings. And we miss this differentiation in our Bible today. And most importantly, you must understand they are not in the same status and power as Yahweh. So the question some of us may ask today is this. Does the Bible promote polytheism? Does the Bible promote the worship of other gods? And let me show you right now. Of course, the answer is what, like, what the brother said. That is, no, definitely not. Why? Because it's obvious in the first commandment, which I just read to you, right? I just read in first, the first commandment, which I read earlier, that we must never worship other lesser Elohim. Our worship must be only Yahweh, the Creator God. Can someone say amen? Can someone say amen? amen. Therefore, the concept of an Elohim is summarized this way. Let me summarize for you right now. Elohim is not Yahweh's name. Elohim is not Yahweh's name. Elohim refers to spiritual beings, spiritual beings' categories such as an angel, sons of God, of course, include Yahweh himself. Therefore, I can say that anyone who has a spiritual address is an Elohim. Now, how many of you here, you have a spiritual address? We don't have, right? But we have a physical address, isn't it? So that's why we are not Elohim. We are human beings, okay? 
So Elohims are those with spiritual address. So coming back to Yahweh's divine family that I started off with, what does the concept of Elohim has to do with God's divine family now? And as shared earlier, the sons of God are created Elohim, spiritual beings, who form part of God's divine counsel and family. All right, so let me repeat it one more time. The sons of God are created Elohim who form part of God's divine family and council. The next question that some of us may have right now, those of you who are jumping two, three steps before me right now, some of you may have this in your mind. Is Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus, one of the sons of God in the council? Is he? Is he one of the sons of God in the council? Have you crossed your mind as I read all these verses? Who is Jesus right now? Is he one of the sons of God? Now, to answer this question, let's go to John 3.16 right now. John 3.16, a very, very well-known verse in the Christian world. John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Say with me, only son. One more time, say with me right now, only son. He said he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, some version will have the phrase only begotten son. Now, when you dive deeper right now into the original text to understand the meaning of the phrase only son. Only son. Now, the phrase for only son in Greek is actually monogenes. Monogenes. This is actually Greek, not Hebrew. We're moving to Greek right now. Monogenes. Now, monogenes is formed by two Greek words called monos and ginao. It's two words combined. Monogenes comes from two Greek words, monos and ginao, which actually means you put them together, it refers to a, 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 a only kind, a special, unique kind, or most of the time we say in English, one of a kind. It's one of a kind, a species, unique kind, a very special kind. And when you use the term monogenes, it's nothing to do with God's begotten. It's nothing to do with birth. It's everything to do with the type. It's a special, special, very special, unique type. We call it species, unique type. An example to further help you understand the meaning of monogenes is found in Hebrew 11 verse 17. This term is also used in Hebrews 11, verse 17. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. Remember the story of Abraham offering Isaac? That's why it's mentioned here right now. The context is that. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, his only monogenes, of whom he was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The same root word is used for Isaac as the only son, the monogenes of Abraham. But if you follow me right now, all of you, those of you who, who know your scriptures a bit better, follow me because you will know as well that, that Isaac, Isaac was not the only son of Abraham. There was one more son. If you remember, there's one more son. And, and Isaac was not the only son. 
The answer is definitely no. Isaac was not the only son because Abraham had another son by the name of Ishmael, who was born before Isaac. But Isaac was the unique son, the special son to Abraham because he was the son of the promised covenant between God and him. So coming back to John 3.16 right now, the verse can be translated as, For God so loved the world that He gave His monogenes, His only special Son, His species' unique Son, His very, very own special Son to the world. So Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, is not just one of the sons of God. He's not. Our Lord Jesus is the Son of God, co-equal with God, in power and in glory. Can someone say amen? And that's why in Hebrews chapter 1, it is written very clearly. If you have time to read Hebrews 1, read it and you'll realize that Hebrews chapter 1 is written to differentiate Christ. Christ's supremacy over other Elohim in the spiritual realm. Just let me read to you right now. Hebrews chapter 1 to 4. Chapter 1 verse 1 to 4. It says, Long ago at times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the, Jesus, let's talk about Jesus Christ here in verse 3. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sin, Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Our Lord Jesus Christ is above them all. So if you were to read the rest of the chapters, you will see Christ's supremacy over other spiritual beings. So scriptures are very clear. Clearly affirming Jesus Christ as co-equal to Yahweh above all other Elohim. So in terms of hierarchy within the divine council of God, you can place Jesus Christ right at the top, highest level next to God, next to Yahweh, followed by the other sons of God and other angels. So with this, let me summarize our learning thus far. Let me summarize right now. Going to slide 32 right now. It says this, Yahweh is supreme over all creation. He's supreme. We know that. The sons of God are part of Yahweh's divine family. And the sons of God assist Yahweh in his counsel to oversee the affairs of his kingdom. And number four, spiritual beings are classified as Elohim. And number five, Jesus Christ is supreme over all Elohim and co-equal with Yahweh. Now, let me also explain the reason for going through all these word studies with all of you. We are laying the foundation for the engagement of other very interesting concepts that will be coming your way in this preaching series. And we are clarifying definition names to provide a biblical basis for more exciting concepts that will be coming your way. So please bear with us, all right, as we break down passages to exegete truths that may not be obvious to some of us 
in our English text. And with the foundation of this week set in place, let me move on right now to the spiritual implications for the spiritual truth, the scriptural truth that we have learned today. Let's look at it right now. It says very clearly this, spiritual implication number one, there are other Elohim in the divine sphere besides Yahweh. There are other Elohim in the spiritual realm. And this is an implication that many of us living in the East, where we are right in the East, we can understand because of our exposure to many religions around us. You know, many of you know that I grew up in Lekko Baru. I grew up there in Lekko Baru where, where there was the worship of a pantheon of gods during different festivity. I always see the celebration of different religious festivity and I always enjoy going there to see them putting up tent, tentage and, and you see different kinds of gods being worshipped there. I always enjoy that. And I will see these gods being arranged in a hierarchical way with, with the most powerful one right at the top. And many of us have grown up with the understanding of spiritual beings and gods among us too. Have you ever wondered yourself? Have you ever wondered? As you go across different nations, different countries, different religions, you realize, eh, where did this concept of this hierarchy of gods come from? They look similar. Yes, maybe different culture, but very similar in one sense to another. Has it ever occurred to you, where did this concept of this council and hierarchy comes from? The concept, let me submit to you today, the concept comes from Yahweh's divine council. And Yahweh allows other lesser spiritual beings to be part of His council in running both the earthly and the heavenly realms. In the next few weeks, you will also learn that there are godly and evil Elohim who are also in the spiritual realm as well. And there are, and we will talk more about them in the weeks ahead. And some of these evil Elohim are fallen sons of God who rebel against Yahweh's divine purpose and order, resulting in them either in punishment, being punished right now, or waiting for future judgment in hell. And we'll talk about them in the days ahead. Therefore, the first implication is very clear, that there are other spiritual beings besides Yahweh in our spiritual realm. Let me move on right now to the second implication. And second implication is this, we will only worship Jesus Christ and Him alone. The second implication is related to the first. With many other Elohim among us, the Bible very clearly forbids us from worshipping other gods except Yahweh Himself. Can someone say amen? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 19 says this, If you, that means this was Moses writing to the Israelites, if you forget the Lord your God, Yahweh, and go after other Elohims and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. And the nations that Yahweh makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of Yahweh, your Elohim. The same warning to Israel is also for us today. We must never incur God's wrath by worshipping the other lesser gods. Many of these fallen Elohim, they desire the worship of humanity. But we must never put our faith and loyalty in them because they do not deserve 
our worship and praise. And we must reserve our worship, our praise to Jesus Christ, who was Yahweh in human form. And I want you to see this passage as well in Revelation on how a godly Elohim actually rebuked John the Revelator for worshipping him. Look at uh, Revelation 22 now. It says this in, in, in verse 8. I, John, am, one of, am, am the one who heard and saw these things. And, and when I heard and saw that, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. Don't do that, John. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. This divine being, when he saw John, fell out at his feet to worship, he was so afraid. He said, please, John, stop it. Don't do that. Get up. Don't do that. Don't worship me. Worship God. John was so overwhelmed by what he saw. He fell down to worship this lesser spiritual being. And immediately this Elohim rebuked him and said, please, John, worship Yahweh. May John's encounter be a reminder to all of us to only worship our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Can someone say amen? So can you say with me right now, tell our neighbors next to you, it's so, it's so difficult, right? In the past, we couldn't see our neighbor. Now you can see each other next to you. Tell our neighbor right now, only Jesus Christ. For those of you online, I want you to type in the chat, only Jesus Christ. Type it right now in the chat, all right? Only Jesus Christ. And with this, let me now move on to my last spiritual implication. Implication number three is that Yahweh desires to have a family. Now, from a concept of the divine council, we can see Yahweh's desire for a divine family. Yes, it's true that God does not need a family, but God created one. Yahweh does not need a divine council to help him administer the spiritual realm. It's not because he was inefficient or unproductive. No, God could have ruled the entire universe alone, but he chooses to have a council. It is not because God was not effective or efficient over creation. No, not at all. It's God's way of involving His divine family to be part of His rule and reign over the universe. It's God allowing His divine family to have a part to play in His rulership, in His reign on earth, in the entire universe. And next week, you will see God doing the same thing for His earthly family creating human beings in His image and allowing them to rule and reign on earth. The mandate to rule and reign. And you see the same template. You see that this divine family provided a similar template for Yahweh's intent and purpose when He created the human family. And I'll reserve this exciting portion of God's divine story next week, all right? I'll hold on to next week. And you understand God's divine plan through the human family. So suffice to say that Yahweh, our God, desires to have a family, beginning with the divine and later involving the human family in Genesis 1 to 3. So in conclusion, I've shown you from scriptures today, right from the word of God, on Yahweh's divine family and council who help Yahweh administer his rule and reign on earth. 
And church, we must base our understanding of the spiritual unseen realm from scriptures, not from somebody else's blog, not from somebody else's text messages. No, it must be from scriptures. Scripture shows us that we are not alone in the universe. There are other lesser spiritual beings, Elohim, who are also part of God's creation. However, none of these lesser Elohim can be compared with Jesus Christ, who was Yahweh in human form where he died and resurrected from the dead. And today, Jesus Christ alone deserves our highest worship, our full devotion, and our unwavering loyalty. Only to Jesus Christ. Can someone say amen? amen? So with this, let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us from your word that you are the supreme creator of all over the heavenly and earthly realms. And we will never give our worship and loyalty to lesser Elohim whom you have created. We worship only Yahweh, the creator God, who sent Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross. And today, we declare our loyalty, our devotion to Jesus, our Lord and King, only to you, Lord Jesus, and no one else. And I want to pause right now to speak to those of us with every eyes Every eyes closed, every head bowed among us over here and also at Tangling right now. For those of us who may have invited other lesser Elohim into our lives. Some of us may have accidentally or playfully invited other lesser Elohim into our lives without knowing from scriptures. But today as you hear from God's word, you realize that, oh wow, are actually, these are actually lesser Elohim that I may, be, I may involve in. And, and we may have worshipped the lesser Elohim or other gods because we did not know the hierarchy of the spiritual realm until today. And we may have asked for the lesser Elohim to help us instead of looking to the Creator, Yahweh, for assistance in our life. And today, you realize that Jesus Christ is the only one who is worthy of your worship and loyalty. And you want Jesus to be the absolute King and Lord over your life the way that He is supreme over every Elohim in the universe. And today you say, Pastor, pray for me. I want Jesus Christ to be the absolute supreme God because He is Yahweh in my life. I will give Jesus my full loyalty and devotion and not to nobody else. If that's you, lift your hands all over this place right now. Lift your hands quickly. That's right. Say, Thank you. He said, Pastor, pray for me. I want Jesus to be the absolute supreme God over my life. Thank you. Thank you for the hand that I'm seeing. Thank you. Thank you. For those of you online, if you want to make Jesus Christ the absolute Lord of your life, that He is supreme. He is a supreme, supreme creator over your life, the King and the Lord over your life. You respond to the Lord by raising your hands to Him and say, God, I welcome you, Lord Jesus, into my life. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Allow the Lord to speak to you right now because I know God is speaking to some of you that He deserves the highest praise and worship in your life. He is supreme and no one else. Thank you, Father. Father, you see these hands, they are raised to you. And I commit all, all those who have responded to you right now. And Lord Jesus, we declare that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We give our absolute and unwavering loyalty and devotion to you. Forgive us, O oh God, if we have given our loyalty to other lesser Elohim. And today, we want to declare that you alone are worthy of our soul obedience and worship. 
We invite you, Lord Jesus, to be King and Lord over every area of our lives. Lord and King in my life, surrendering every part of my being to you. So we submit to your kingship over us in Jesus' powerful name. We pray all this, O oh God. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Amen.